Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Kara Ongwele, Associate Director of the Madison Center, and joining me today is Dr. Abe Goldberg, Executive Director of the Madison Center. Hi, Abe. How are you, Kara? I'm doing well, all things considered. How about all, you? All things considered. There's a lot to consider. <laughs> there, there's a lot of asterisks that come with that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we were having a nice conversation about screen time and kids before, uh, before we hit record on this. Yes. <laughs> and that we should not be, feel guilty that our children are having screen time while we record. <laughs> As I'm feeling guilty about it. In today's episode, we're going to be talking with Dr. Edward Yang, a professor of political science at James Madison University. Dr. Yang is a native of mainland China and received his bachelor's degree in diplomacy and international affairs from China Foreign Affairs University in Beijing and his PhD in political science from Texas A&M University. Professor Yang specializes in Chinese politics, foreign policy, decision-making, political psychology, and international political economy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Yang. I'm wondering if you can start by telling us about how China responded to COVID-19 and how did China's response set the precedence for the way in which other countries responded to the public health crisis? So based uh, on, on what we know uh, so far, uh, the earliest uh, case COVID-19 uh, emerged in the city of uh, Wuhan in China, in central China in November 2019. Uh, the, after the, uh, uh, the news broke, the initial uh, instinct of the local uh, authorities in Wuhan uh, was to be very wary of allowing that information to come out, um, particularly uh, for the probably the reasons of social instability uh, and the uh, not to be uh, overshadowing the upcoming uh, major political conference in January. Uh, so uh, they decided not to disclose information to the public. They, they even uh, punished uh, the doctors who uh, first reported uh, the case on social Chinese social media uh, platforms. Uh, so these actions um, have been considered uh, regarded by many uh, observers, experts, uh, as ones that had squandered uh, precious time uh, and, uh, and delayed the uh, 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 response to the, uh, to the virus outbreak. Uh, so uh, as the crisis worsened through uh, January, uh, the cases of infection deaths started to, uh, to mount. Uh, then the government of China started to uh, implementing very strict uh, regional lockdown and quarantine uh, measures uh, in Wuhan uh, area and later on throughout the entire country. Uh, so uh, on January the 23rd, uh, movement uh, in and out of Wuhan uh, was completely stopped. Uh, flights and trains were uh, suspended and roads were blocked. Um, and uh, so this measure was later expanded to uh, the most of the Hubei province, uh, where uh, Wuhan uh, was the uh, capital city. And these measures uh, affected uh, about 60 million people in total. Uh, what followed next was that many Chinese cities ordered their uh, own residents uh, to uh, outside of Hubei, Wuhan region to remain home uh, and not to uh, go out uh, unless absolutely necessary. Uh, and this, uh, these measures affected about 760 million people uh, nationwide. Uh, so uh, about three weeks into the lockdown of Hubei and uh, Wuhan area uh, and the shutdown of the uh, rest of the 
much of the rest of the country, China began to uh, flatten the curve of the rates of in, uh, infection. Um, the 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 peak was reached on February the 13th, just three weeks after Wuhan uh, was locked down, uh, and the uh, total number of confirmed cases of infection dropped uh, precipitously. Uh, it's about uh, 2,500 on February the 15th, uh, and then below uh, 1,000 after February the 19th. And uh, on March the 19th, uh, 2020, uh, there were zero local infections was reported. Uh, so uh, with the flattened curve and uh, sustained uh, low infection rate and also the slowing down of the death rate, uh, the, the Chinese authority decided to gradually open up uh, the uh, country's economy and lifted Wuhan's lockdown on April uh, the 8th. So right now, China is in a sort of phased uh, reopening of the economy and the society. Uh, so it's uh, ahead of the, uh, the United States and much of the uh, uh, rest of the world. I wonder if you could talk also a little bit about how China's response uh, set the precedence for the way in which other countries responded and how China's response to COVID-19 differed uh, in from the way in which we've seen other countries respond? Sure. Uh, I think the China's uh, experience of dealing with this um, COVID uh, crisis uh, had provided both uh, errors uh, and successes to the rest of the world, uh, and both of which gave very valuable lessons uh, to uh, the world uh, effort to combat the pandemic. I think for, for the sort of the, uh, the errors, the lessons to be learned was that uh, the uh, the government should not um, try to cover up uh, valuable information about the, the cases uh, and symptoms. Uh, so because of the early uh, cover-up, cover uh, the oh, that allowed the cases to uh, rise more uh, quickly and to expand uh, more widely, geographically speaking. So there is a report that came out of the uh, University of Southampton in uh, the uh, in the United Kingdom uh, that estimated that had the government of China. Uh, responded and in, or intervened into uh, the early cases uh, by uh, one week earlier uh, the the cases of the number of cases of infection could have uh, be uh, dropped by 66%. So that's a valuable le lesson to be learned by, by uh, countries around the world that is you know you, you should not just try to cover up information you should allow a complete transparency and accountability uh, to uh, collectively address the, the problem. Uh, there are also very good lessons in terms of the you know the technical aspect of, of uh, reducing the um, this transmission of the virus. What China has done is um, regional lockdown, uh, quarantine, uh, practicing uh, social distancing, uh, wearing masks, uh, show social distance uh, and early de detection, and contact tracing. So these are a very good uh, technical. Um, uh, aspects, measures that can be uh, have been learned by uh, other countries uh, you know, to combat the, the, the pandemic. Uh, so that's the uh, uh, I'd say uh, the kind of uh, precedent that China set for the rest of the world in this in this uh, uh, battle. Dr. Yang, can you give us a sense? of where China is now in terms of its reopening, uh, both the economy and society in general? 
sure. So China uh, started gradually, uh, gradual and phased opening up uh, about uh, the late, mid to late February. Uh, phase by phase and region uh, by region, and the, the Wuhan, the epicenter of the uh, of the uh, uh, pandemic, uh, its own lockdown was lifted on April uh, the uh, the eighth. So uh, right now, uh, China is uh, trying to uh, reopen its economy, and the most recent estimate was that the manufacturing capacity uh, reached. To about eighty percent of what is what it was prior to the uh, pandemic outbreak. Uh, the I have families uh, still back in China, so uh, some of them started going back to work as early as uh, late uh, March. They they're from the northeastern part of China, close to Beijing, uh, and they also told me that uh, some of the uh, restaurants started to reopen, uh, but uh, with much less uh, clientele uh, uh, compared to the pre-COVID uh, 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 era. Uh, and also the uh, movie theaters, uh, the places for public entertainment, uh, bathhouse, and the, those places remain closed. And uh, the public transit started to, to operate, uh, but uh, the China implements now a very strict uh, sort of coded uh, program. Uh, whenever somebody goes to a grocery store or getting a bus, they need to show their uh, a, a code from their cell phone to be scanned by by a device uh, in those uh, public places. Uh, if your code turns out to be a green, then you're allowed to go into the grocery store or going to get on the bus. If it is a red uh, color, for example, then you're uh, prohibited from going to public spaces. So there, uh, the country is gradually opening up, uh, but people are, are, you know, moving around with great deal of caution. Uh, and also the the China's economy, uh, although the uh, some of the factories return to uh, operation, however, because the rest of the world is still combating uh, the pandemic, uh, particularly uh, European uh, countries, North America and, and Japan, these are the biggest markets for the Chinese uh, goods uh, and services. So. Uh, many of the factories, even though they're open, uh, they don't really have uh, any orders uh, from overseas, uh, uh, except those uh, uh, factories that produce uh, the PPEs, the personal uh, protection uh, equipment, uh, ventilators that is needed uh, desperately by the rest of the world. Uh, and also, there is a, a great deal of concern for the possible second wave outbreak uh, as people started going back to uh, work, going back to their sort of a new normal uh, of uh, lives. Uh, and uh, early April, uh, there's uh, a small city in northeastern uh, China uh, that's called uh, uh, Suifenhe that was uh, locked down uh, because of some Chinese citizens that returned from uh, Russia. There were business people doing business in Russia that returned to uh, Suifenhe, and uh, apparently some of them were uh, had uh, were infected by the, by the by the virus, which resulted in, in a lockdown. So the uh, so the country is slowly going back uh, in a phased way and in a piecemeal way to to normal both socially and economically, uh, but there are still a lot of challenges and uh, concerns uh, ahead. I 
wonder if you can talk a little bit about the impact that this global health crisis has had on domestic politics in China. So, for example, to what extent is Xi Jinping emerging stronger or weaker domestically because of the crisis? Um, and do you think that the crisis is going to impact the trajectory of China in terms of reform, such as reinforcing the, the role of the state in the economy? Uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting to observe uh, the ebbs and flows of uh, Chinese uh, domestic um, politics uh, and uh, as reflected in Chinese social media uh, uh, discussions. Uh, the, the, the most uh, – the major uh, social media platform uh, that Chinese people use is called WeChat. Uh, it has, I think, more probably the most users around the world, uh, more uh, more users than Facebook Messenger or uh, Twitter and so on. Uh, I use WeChat to communicate with my friends and families back uh, in China. Uh, so, uh, in terms of the, uh, so I will talk about how, how how I gleaned through the uh, the Chinese domestic domestic politics through the uh, discussions uh, I had on WeChat with people back in China. But uh, in, in terms of the uh, Xi Jinping, who is a, a China's uh, leader, he's the president of China and also the. Uh, uh, the secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, the ruling party uh, of China. Uh, I think in terms of his domestic political standing, it is still kind of too early uh, to tell. Um, early in the in a crisis, uh, when China was in the most difficult situation in terms of the number of infections and uh, death uh, in uh, late January through early February, uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, online uh, social media criticisms from the Chinese citizens uh, against Xi Jinping because he was uh, kind of uh, uh, absent from the, uh, the public eyes, uh, which is very unusual. Uh, the leaders uh, in this time of crisis in China typically would appear uh, in uh, the locations where uh, the crisis uh, occurred uh, and to show solidarity and to show support and so on. But he was simply absent for a few weeks and people wonder where he was. And uh, so there was a lot of criticisms against him. Uh, but then as uh, China started to uh, implement uh, those draconian uh, measures of lockdown and quarantine, uh, it started to flatten the curves and the infections numbers started to decline, while at the same time, uh, the infection rate and death rate in other parts of the world started to uh, increase. Uh, surpassing uh, China's statistics. So in March, uh, about mid-March, uh, China Chinese government sort of declared a, a victory uh, of this battle against COVID-19. Uh, and Xi Jinping, uh, he emerged in public eyes and he toured, uh, he traveled to Wuhan, the epicenter of the coronavirus, and toured some of the hospitals and uh, visited some of the uh, medical staff who are on the front line of the, this, this combat of COVID-19 team and a sort of declaring uh, a mission accomplished uh, a message. And uh, it's very interesting. Uh, from that moment on, the Chinese uh, propaganda tools, the Chinese media uh, started shifting uh, the focus on dom domestic uh, uh, COVID cases or conditions to outside of China. Uh, it's, it's very interesting because uh, starting uh, – later, I realized starting in March, 
uh, late March, about March 19th, 20th-ish. That's that's after Xi, Xi Jinping's visit to Wuhan. I started getting these messages from uh, my friends uh, in China, uh, some which whom I haven't uh, re- uh, 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 talked with or, or, or contact with uh, for for years. Started asking me, "Are you okay? Are you okay in the in, in the United States? Uh, do you need masks? <laughs> I can I can uh, send masks to, to your house to, to to help your family." Uh, so I was like, "What's going on here? Why suddenly all these uh, Chinese friends are asking about my my health and safety?" And at the time, the case numbers in the U.S. started to climb up, uh, but that was before sort of the uh, the uh, uh, when the schools started to uh, close down and uh, stay home orders were were given by various states, but. Uh, the reason they started asking me those questions is because the media's state media uh, media and propaganda uh, platforms controlled by the Chinese uh, government uh, started to f- all focus on the worsening situations uh, overseas, particularly the in- United States. So they uh, have this uh, continued reporting about Chinese cases, U- U.S. cases, uh, and also the uh, disjointed and chaotic handling of the uh, the pandemic uh, by the Trump administration. Uh, so, with that uh, refocusing on uh, foreign cases, uh, I think people in China started to uh, forget about uh, the uh, some of the. Uh, errors or mistakes or covering up uh, by their own government early in the uh, in the in the crisis, and uh, so it's uh, uh, so that actually gave I think Xi Jinping a little uh, boost in his uh, domestic uh, standing. Uh, he emerged uh, as some kind of a victor uh, in this uh, crisis, uh, and people when they compare China vis-a-vis the United States, they they thought. Uh, well, actually, China had done a pretty good job of, uh, of saving its own people in terms of the infection rates and uh, death rates. Uh, and the Chinese government uh, is, has done a really good job. Uh, but I think this, is a sort of a sh- this boost potentially can be just a, a short-term boost to Xi Jinping's domestic standing. And in a long term, uh, when the crisis started to uh, wind down, uh, the economic uh, uh, damage or the economic uh, tolls on the China on China uh, will uh, have a I think more significant impact on the political standing of Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party as a whole uh, because to uh, provide jobs to uh, give uh, continue to uh, increase the living standard of the Chinese people is where the Chinese Communist Party rests its legitimacy. Uh, in contemporary uh, China. So if China cannot uh, get uh, back to its own feet in terms of economic uh, development, uh, then people uh, would be uh, unhappy uh, about the party uh, as well as Xi Jinping. And also, uh, the the rest of the, of the world uh, is currently combating uh, the pandemic for the most part. Uh, as other countries started to, uh, you know, uh, Address uh, uh, calm down the the uh, the pandemic uh, worldwide. Uh, some country, some countries in the world may start to reckon, start their own reckoning about what is the sort of the the origin, what uh, what was the real source of the the, the pandemic, what happened in the early uh, days of the this crisis. Uh, 
so there might be emerging um, demands uh, or actions to uh, look into sort of the, the details of what happened uh, in November, December of 2019, the early years of the days of the uh, of the outbreak that led to this uh, global pandemic, and if there were evidence uh, that came out later on that uh, there were the Chinese government uh, at the top level were hiding uh, information, were sitting on valuable information without acting on it, uh, that could, uh, I think generate outcry from the international community uh, and the Chinese people uh, would also be uh, very upset about it. Uh, so all these could potentially uh, threaten the uh, political uh, standing of Xi Jinping and his administration. Uh, and I think in terms of the, the impact of the uh, pandemic on uh, the potential for the China's political and economic reforms, uh, I think uh, politically, uh, it's going to uh, slow down uh, any uh, hope for uh, democratization uh, in China. Uh, China under Xi Jinping has already uh, kind of uh, backtracked uh, in terms of the dem uh, democratization uh, 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 process uh, greatly. And he has uh, uh, tightened uh, the political and ideological control uh, over uh, China since he became leader of China in 2012. Uh, and uh, authoritarian leaders, I think they, uh, they always wanted to have the opportunity to control the population by uh, either information control uh, and or movement control. And this pandemic uh, gives uh, the Chinese Communist Party a, a perfect reason uh, to strengthen uh, what is already very uh, intrusive monitoring of Chinese uh, citizens. Uh, I think uh, the, the kind of uh, a privacy debate uh, about social media uh, uh, and private citizens such as you know Facebook and Google and so on, they're uh, you know virtually non-existent uh, in China. I think the Chinese government will use uh, this uh, COVID-19 pandemic as an excuse to strengthen uh, its control surveillance of Chinese citizens and, and society. So any uh, hope for more civic engagement uh, um, and democratization uh, and so on, I think would be uh, would be sort of uh, crushed, uh, and also. The uh, to sort of uh, uh, avoid having uh, to be, be being blamed uh, for causing the problem, I think uh, the CCP is going to continue uh, continually uh, point fingers uh, at uh, foreign powers uh, such as uh, the United States uh, for you know treating uh, China unfairly uh, and fanning domestic nationalism uh, to shore up the support uh, for the CCP uh, regime and Xi Jinping administration. And economically, I think in the uh, recovery uh, process, the state-owned enterprises, those companies uh, that are controlled, owned by the state, will probably receive uh, more uh, preferential treatment in terms of receiving uh, loans and government policy uh, uh, treatments uh, to recover. Uh, I think those privately owned uh, small uh, and mid-sized companies will have a, uh, a, a harder time. Uh, so uh, any um, that kind of uh, indicate any hope for more e economic liberalization uh, in China in the immediate aftermath of COVID-19 would be, uh, would be uh, uh, minimal. Can you speak 
to the kinds of questions and issues the pandemic has raised about China-Taiwan relations? Uh, well, the China-Taiwan relations already was quite strained uh, even before the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, the China, uh, Taiwan's uh, president, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, she's a leader of the pro-independence uh, Democratic Progressive Party. Uh, she was uh, re-elected uh, to have the second term of Taiwan's uh, president. Um, and she advocated for uh, a uh, more independent, transparent, and democratic uh, Taiwan, uh, a model of governance that's in stark contrast to uh, that of Beijing, uh, which you know Beijing, of course, disliked. Uh, and also, uh, the in the midst of the uh, pro-democracy protest uh, in Hong Kong uh, last year, uh, Taiwan uh, showed uh, strong support and solidarity with uh, the pro-democracy uh, groups and citizens uh, in uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, so that's the sort of the politically, the Taiwan and China, they're not getting any closer uh, in the context of COVID-19. Uh, and also, uh, Taiwan uh, turned out to be a good Go a good good example, a uh, successful example of uh, combating COVID nineteen uh, as a, a democratic uh, a society. Uh, its uh, rates of infection and death rate are very very low. Uh, however, uh, because of its political standing in uh, in international uh, relations, uh, it could not get. Are really a meaningful representation uh, in the World Health Organization. Uh, China uh, forced the, the WHO to uh, take away uh, Taiwan's observer status that it used to have in the organization. Uh, so, uh, you know, Taiwan could not really uh, meaningfully share uh, its its views and have uh, input in the global uh, health governance. Uh, so many countries around the world, including the U.S. and uh, some European countries, Japan, supported restoring uh, Taiwan's observer status in the WHO. Uh, and also in terms of the, um, uh, the status of uh, China-Taiwan relations, in the, after COVID-19, uh, the crisis ends, I think Xi Jinping would have a, a challenge uh, of how to deal with a, a Taiwan uh, uh, issue. Uh, because uh, for decades, Beijing has de depicted uh, Taiwan as a sort of a runaway uh, a, a pr a province of China. Uh, so as Taiwan become increasingly stronger in terms of its uh, uh, achievement, uh, economic achievement, democratic re reputation, uh, and the uh, uh, tremendous success in the COVID-19 uh, a crisis. Uh, uh, Taiwanese people are, you know, going uh, to increasingly uh, develop, uh, strengthen its own identity that's separate from uh, uh, the, uh, that of China. Uh, so, how to manage, uh, you know, the Taiwan's status uh, within its own uh, population in mainland China is is going to be a challenge to to Xi Jinping. I wonder if you could also talk about U.S. and China relations, both before the crisis and, and how the crisis is impacting China's relationships with the United States and other countries in this moment. As we know that the, the Trump administration had uh, taken a very uh, tough uh, and aggressive uh, stance against China ever since it took uh, office, uh, the uh, administration 
uh, waged a trade war. Uh, actually, the uh, the first phase of the trade the deal uh, as a result of trade war uh, was reached on January the fifteenth, and China pledged to purchase more uh, American goods uh, in those uh, deals, but. Uh, it was this trade deal was basically uh, overshadowed uh, by the ensued uh, COVID uh, pandemic, uh, and during the in the midst of the pandemic, um, the uh, U.S.-China relations, I think, uh, essentially enter into a, a further deterioration, uh, or some people have called it a free fall uh, conditions a situation. Uh, not only there is virtually no meaningful collaborations. Uh, between uh, China and the United States uh, in uh, combating this global health crisis. Uh, in fact, some people argue that there is virtually no diplomacy between China and the U.S. at this moment. Uh, but the only thing that remains is, is bickering and, and uh, blaming uh, between each other. Uh, so the Trump administration uh, blamed China for uh, you know, causing uh, the the problem for the world for the U.S. Uh, for hiding the information, and intentionally used uh, the phrase such as the China's uh, Chinese virus, the Wuhan virus, uh, to sort of uh, uh, perpetuate this 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 uh, blame uh, on on Chinese uh, uh, side, uh, possibly for you know at least partially for uh, uh, its own uh, domestic political reasons because. You know, 2020 is an election year in the United States. Uh, at the same time, uh, China uh, is also uh, went on a, a narrative offense. Uh, the uh, not uh, you know willing to accept any uh, blame from uh, any uh, country, including the United States, for delaying uh, the response. Uh, the some of the uh, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokespeople. Uh, uh, went on Twitter uh, even to uh, spread some of the uh, rumor uh, about uh, how the virus was actually uh, you know, manufactured by the United States and spread intentionally uh, to uh, in Wuhan by uh, American uh, military uh, back in the fall of 2019. So there are a lot of uh, treating of uh, blames and uh, uh, disinformation, misinformation between the two sides. Uh, so this is really, uh, really uh, um, counterproductive uh, in the midst of global uh, pandemic. Uh, so I think it's uh, right now it's uh, uh, not very uh, optimistic in terms of the outlook of U.S.-China relations. Uh, it's very likely that for domestic, each uh, respectable domestic political reasons, uh, that both countries are going to. Uh, try to hold the other side accountable to uh, to the to, to the crises, uh, and uh, potentially uh, things can get better uh, after the election. Um, but I think it's too early to tell at this moment. I wonder if you have any suggestions for for what could be done to improve and reinvigorate diplomacy between China and the U.S. Yeah, I, I think um, official diplomacy uh, may be hard to. Uh, get started in a meaningful way at this moment, given the, you know, domestic political considerations, which are um, of a, uh, you know fundamental fundamental importance to to both sides. Uh, but I think uh, public diplomacy uh, could continue. Uh, for example, 
the collaborations, cooperations between uh, medical institutions, universities, uh, on both countries could uh, continue without uh, the any uh, interventions, involvement of the respective governments uh, to try to, f- to find uh, useful uh, recipes or, or uh, for you know, dealing with the uh, the pandemic. Uh, and uh, also there are uh, civic societies, uh, citizens uh, from each side can also uh, cooperate, collaborate uh, virtually. Uh, right, right now, because of the uh, lockdown of the national borders, the travels between two countries are, uh, are impossible. Uh, but uh, you know, via uh, cyber uh, platforms, uh, civil societies can communicate uh, with each other. Uh, and also, I think people who are uh, aware of the uh, the danger of the further deterioration of U.S.-China relations um, should uh, take the opportunity to stand up uh, to voice uh, their views to um, to the world about the importance of U.S.-China cooperation uh, for the uh, public goods, for the uh, benefits of the of the humanity. Uh, there are some good examples uh, of that. For example, in uh, Early April, uh, about 100 also American scholars and former officials uh, from both sides of the uh, political spec- uh, spectrum uh, published open letter uh, calling for uh, cooperations between U.S. and China on uh, the uh, pand- uh, pandemic uh, crisis. Uh, and the Chinese scholars uh, likewise issued uh a similar letter calling for uh, such cooperations. Uh, I think uh, these uh, these calls for cooperation would, uh, you know, capture the public attention, um, and I think that's uh, that's the uh, sort of important way to sustain uh, cooperation because the world cannot uh, really move forward without uh, the two most. Uh, Powerful uh, countries uh, in the on Earth to cooperate. There's so many issues other than uh, COVID-19 uh, that require these two countries to work together, such as climate change, uh, weapons prolifer- proliferations, and uh, and how to uh, you know work with uh, and uh, how to achieve cooperations uh, under the. Uh, uh, globalization. Uh, so these are all uh, important questions, and uh, w- the world cannot afford uh, without uh, the cooperation between China and the United States. Thank you so much for for joining us. Um, this has been an enlightening conversation. Our final question is this, Dr. Yang: What would you do to strengthen democracy? Uh, that's a that's a great uh, question, and um, it's a very important question. I think I think. Uh, under the uh, the context of COVID-19, uh, there are a lot of uh, discussions uh, and thinking about uh, the comparison uh, between uh, democracy versus uh, non-democracies. Um, a lot of people ask, you know, whether uh, which regime types is doing a better job uh, in terms of. Um, in dealing, addressing uh, the pandemic issue, the crisis. And a lot of people point to China as a more successful uh, example, uh, saying democracies such as European countries and uh, the US actually are doing a, a, a poorer job in time of crisis. I think for, for those people, um, I would like to, uh, I think, share some of my views on this. Number one, 
the people who are uh, citizens of democracies should um, be aware that uh, even though China, um, you know, present itself to be a successful uh, nation that uh, sort of curtailed, uh, reduced uh, the damage of COVID-19. However, uh, it, it is precisely the kind of uh, the, the features of the authoritarian states, uh, uh, such as the control of information, the lack of transparency, the lack of accountability, uh, that have created the crisis uh, in the first place. Uh, and democracies uh, are much more open and transparent, have free press, uh, are less likely uh, to create uh, these problems uh, in the first place. So, uh, you know, with China, you can say that China is good at, uh, you know, addressing the problems that it has created itself in the first place. Uh, but of course, it would be nice to not to have the, these problems. Um, so that's that's one thing I think people should bear in mind. Uh, number two, I think, uh, for uh, you know, democracies has always been a, a political uh, system that is more uh, resilient uh, and innovative. Uh, people who live under democracies are proud to be uh, citizens of democratic nations. And some people worry that in time of crises, uh, the the danger or threat of the uh, the virus would suppress uh, you know democratic uh, participations, uh, which actually may not be the case. For, uh, for example, in uh, mid-April, uh, I think April the 16th, uh, South Korea uh, held a uh, national parliamentary election, and uh, the voter turnout rate to, turned out to be was the highest uh, in two decades. Uh, I think it was about 67 percent. And you look at even uh, in the United States, there was an example of uh, primary uh, elections where uh, in, in Wisconsin, uh, some of the uh, voters uh, participated uh, in uh, primary uh, elections in a record rate, despite the fact of the danger of uh, uh, the, the virus. So I think there's uh, a lot of resilience uh, and uh, democracy is a self-invading mechanism and also I think the, the this this crisis probably gives the practitioners of democracy an opportunity uh, to uh, to practice uh, some of the new ways of uh, democratic uh, elections like uh, such as vote, for example, such as the uh, voting uh, by mail, voting online. Of course, a lot of uh, potential technical uh, challenges and, and privacy uh, dangers to that. But th I think it's it's a it's it's this, uh, the, the the crisis gave the uh, momentum uh, for these experiments. Uh, and also, I think the crisis because people are uh, mostly staying home. Uh, this could be a very good opportunity for um, practitioners of, of elections, democratic elections, to uh, experiment with uh, 
increasing outreach to uh, the millennial uh, generations uh, because they are the generation that rely most a lot on uh, the internet, uh, social media flat platforms for a lot of their social uh, activities. This could be a, a good opportunity to opportunity to reach out to them to get them involved in. Uh, participating in uh, in, in elections or the democratic democratic uh, uh, practices. I think you just did an outstanding job of describing the work ahead for the Madison Center, in colleges and universities across the country, uh, with a with a significant election coming up. Dr. Yang, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. We really appreciate your time and your expertise. Well, thanks for uh, having me. Uh, I had a great time uh, sharing my uh, thoughts on these uh, very important issues. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Leah Jackson, a senior in the School of Media Arts and Design at James Madison University. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the Madison Center online at jmu.edu slash civic. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.